Welcome to the Government Huddle with Brian Chittister, a new podcast from Government Marketing University. My entire career has been dedicated to marketing in the government space. And in the beginning, I never cared about the why. I was completely focused on the how. It was all about the tactics, the analytics, the ROI, rinse and repeat. Then I decided I wanted to understand these programs and technologies the same way our customers do. It opened up a whole new world for me. And that is what this show is about, aligning the why with the how, taking a deep dive on current trends, making bold, educated predictions about the market, learning from expert guests, and discovering innovative concepts on how to respond to all of this. So join us as we talk about all things government marketers need to know about today, tomorrow, and beyond. Come on, let's huddle up. There's more innovation than a lot of people are aware of or think is possible that's happening in the public sector space. There's a lot of very innovative things happening that of course are feeding the commercial side of the world in the United States. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Election season has come and gone and the United States will be ushering a new administration under Joe Biden. One of the largest issues debated in the past few months has been the pandemic. Initially, many thought the coronavirus would be an inconvenience to government organizations for about three or four months, and then everything would go back to normal. And as we know, it hasn't, and we're constructing a new normal. One of the largest parts of that has been the shift to remote work. And as much as this giant telework beta test has been a success, still there's challenges to long-term distance work arrangements that need to be resolved. Just like the private sector, governments will have to figure out the solutions to these challenges, but with a concerted effort and maybe even a joint effort, it can be done. And as these challenges are addressed, a new normal will become just the norm. And that's what we're focused on today, the future of government work, which I've said hasn't really changed. All of this was still coming eventually, but just simply have been accelerated. Today's guest, Gary Danoff, is one of the foremost experts in the future of government work and will certainly add a lot to today's conversation. Gary's the global head of Google Workspace, formerly known as G Suite, for public sector at Google. In this role, he leads the marketing strategy and sales activation for this very high-profile business unit. Before he joined Google, he was the Senior Vice President of Cloud at DLT Solutions, where he led the cloud solutions practice, providing government customers with the architectural and technical direction in the selection of appropriate cloud products and services. He's also a certified life coach and the host of his own podcast, What's Next Now?, where he discusses how enhanced human connections drive business growth and career success. Gary has over 30 years of industry experience at leading companies, including Microsoft and SAP, and has been kind enough to spend some time with us today. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Brian, it's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. I learned about uh, yourself, and I'm surprised we hadn't crossed paths uh, up until now. Um, a mutual friend and, and colleague of ours, Karen Terrell, who's now president of U.S. Public Sector at OpenText, I, I listened to the podcast that you had with her and um, was blown away. I think your content's great and uh, what you're doing in the industry is fantastic. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start off We're we're coming up on Thanksgiving and I don't know how your household is, but my, my wife and I are big on the idea of gratitude, not just around Thanksgiving, but uh, year round and something we try to instill in our kids. So um, you being a certified life coach, um, what, if you look at 2020, sometimes it's difficult to extract things that you're grateful for, right? Because everybody's looking at some of the 
some of the challenges we've had, and they might be hyper-focused on some of the, the burdens they've had to overcome. But what are some things or, or a thing that you are just extremely grateful for right now? Well, it's tough to pick a thing, Brian. It's it's tough mm. to pick a thing. I'll just give you, you know, two, no more than three bullets on what I'm extraordinarily grateful for right now. And, and you know, clearly health, that's the number one thing. You know, health for myself, most people I know, and certainly my family. But I'm also grateful for kind of a strange gift that I feel like COVID has given us if we if we accept it, which is the opportunity to slow down in places where maybe previously we wouldn't have slowed down. Even while we're all accelerating and doing more, I've noticed that when I take more walks during the day and notice the way that the light shines on a tree or in a house and have you know, 15 to 60 seconds of mindfulness to recognize truly the here and now. I'm really grateful for that expanded awareness. And I think it's good for my health and, and certainly good for everything else. No, I, I like that being able to take a second to slow down. I know for me, I'm I'm a big runner and I've talked about that on the podcast before, but what I've been able to do more often during the pandemic is toss my daughter in the stroller and go, go for a run and something that usually I'm just trying to fit it in during the day, but being able to spend that kind of 45 minutes to an hour with her and, and be able to go out and experience things and see things through her eyes for that period of time while we're out and about is, has been kind of fun. Super sweet, super sweet. Yeah. So, so why don't we jump into it? Tell us a little bit about, about your career um, and how you ended up at Google. It's an interesting one. I know you've, you have some background at DLT and at Microsoft, and now you're you're heading up a, a pretty large business unit at Google. So uh, tell us about that. Well, Brian, let's sit around <laughs> the fire and figure out where should we begin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'll just uh, I'll say this that um, a friend of mine, a published author, while ago when I was working on a manuscript for a book that I've yet to publish, but it will be coming out. He said to me with regards to the topic of me being a salesperson, he said, Gary, you were bred for this. And I was like, what do you mean by that, Rob? He's like, well, you're, both of your parents were salespeople. Uh, may they rest in peace. They're both no longer on the physical earth. But my dad was a carpet salesman. And my mom was an accessories salesperson in a time when women weren't really salespeople. They didn't do that. Uh, but but the gift that they gave me was the benefit of uh, seeing kind of the joy with which they had in talking to and listening to people. And I literally would sit from afar and, and watch this uh, and, and observe it. And so somehow I internalized that and that begot my joy of the art and the science of selling as a career. So yeah, I've always been in the technology field. I had one kind of side stint or a couple, a couple actually of, of entrepreneurialism. I had a video production company. I had a company where I marketed um, video games, but I've always enjoyed technology and, and technology sales and sales leadership. So, so that's uh, a little bit about my path. That's interesting. So did you find that you, cause you said your, your friend said you were bred for this, which if somebody told me I was bred for sales, I, I don't know if I should take that as a compliment or, <laughs> or maybe I need to make another choice in life. But um, at, at the same time, it, it's very it's very interesting that you have such a diverse background. Yes, a lot of it, the, the macro story there is technology, but 
uh, in different areas. Do you find that those unique niches have kind of contributed to how you see uh, the landscape and what you're doing? Well, certainly the background in sales has contributed to it. And then like all of us, you know, when we become our own people in the world, what, what I found is more of my calling or a, a piece of my true calling is the the deep listening and the coaching side of things. So helping people on their own journeys. And so as, as an executive coach and advisor, uh, which includes life coaching, that's a piece of what I do. And so about 15 years ago, I, I began to incorporate that in, which was not something that either of my parents did, but you know, clearly that's a piece that, that I, that I claim own and, uh, and, and deliver. So I think that was affected and informed by my background, but also, you know, for everybody by who we become and who we are. So, so yeah, you mentioned you're obviously a certified life coach. How has that contributed to uh, your role, whether it's in sales or, or any of your kind of positions since you've, you've done that? Is that, is that informed some of uh, how you see it? it? It has because, you know, the main thing about being a coach versus being a consultant is, in coaching, we believe that the answer that people come to the coaching relationship seeking, you know, can you help me with this? I'm really stuck on this. We believe that the answer is actually within the person, within their realm, and that they're uh, they're blocked or or haven't been able to see it yet. Versus if you hire a consultant, hey, I've got this problem with these numbers. I need to gain this much market share. Please go off and study it. Come back and give a presentation to the board and tell us what to do. So the difference in coaching is kind of taking that journey with somebody, and I use that in business all the time. I mix the two together um, all the time. And the way that I do it is by um, kind of asking people, uh, prodding them a little bit, you know, can you figure this out and what do you think the answer would be? That's that's really interesting. I, I I've, especially over the pandemic, but even before then, I've I've started listening to more uh, audible books while mm. I work or even while That's I great. walk or run. And some of the ones I tend to lean towards are ones that are more, frankly, militaristic in nature. Um, mm. I'm a big I'm a big fan of uh, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin's Extreme Ownership book and Dichotomy of Leadership book. They're, they're two former Navy SEALs that are bringing their form of leadership and, and um, thoughts about how they go about things into the business world. But okay. what what I've found is that very similar to what you just said, some of some of it I hear and it think you think about it, it really is just kind of uncovering that piece of, you know what, I kind of already knew that, but my brain didn't allow me to think that way. But now I'm now I can kind of see that a little bit clearer, but it was always a, an intuitive feeling. Is that kind of what you're describing? It is. Yeah, exactly that. When you realize yourself, as you just said, hey, I think I already knew that, or I kind of already knew that, but maybe the prompt of hearing them tell a story or reading it, or the way that they built up to it allowed you to get to it. Um, and then maybe additionally, some other things that they offered kind of took your knowledge a little bit further, which is which is often what we try and do in advising or, or coaching. So you and I started our podcast actually around the same time as I was as I was looking back, I didn't realize actually how how parallel they were in terms of timeline. Um, what made you want to start yours? I have I was listening to um, I think it was a TED talk or read something like you. I'm a consumer of lots of different 
sources and pieces of information when I'm working out or walking or when I just need to give myself a break from whatever. And one of the more productive things that that this source was telling me that kind of resonated quickly internally when the pandemic started was, oh my gosh, I've got to take the fear and anxiety and produce something positive. I, I wanted to have that bent. And that's how I wanted to manifest um, the understandable, you know, fear and anxiety and uncertainty from a world pandemic. And so that's what got me to do it then. But I also was thinking that, you know, this particular medium might be the best way for me to share, inspire, and and help people on their journeys. And so far, it's turned out to be that way. So I've had uh, perhaps a, a, a mutual friend of ours, Tom Mahoney, who, who runs marketing over at DLT. And I had him on the show. And, and something you probably don't know about Tom, he and I actually went to high school together. I did um, not know So that. It, was, it was cool to, to reunite. And Tom's, Tom's a really smart guy. Great. He is. A great guy, but, but a really excellent marketer. And I enjoyed having that conversation with him. And what, that's one of the things he was talking about is at DLT, I think this might have been a side conversation we had, they're, they're looking to stand up a, a podcast or sort of a smaller ecosystem of podcasts to get help get their message out and support their customer base. Um, and he, so he was asking me questions, but I'm always looking for ways that I can improve upon what I'm doing, um, no matter what it is, especially this sure. podcast. Um, but what have you learned um, about uh, podcasts or even production as you've done yours? And, and do you have any kind of tips or advice for myself and the listeners who might be thinking about starting one? Sure, sure, sure. I'll share what I know. Um, I don't know that I can can give a lot around production because I'm still at the pretty basic level. Um, but I, I can tell you a couple things around my path around content and around sharing it. So my content has ranged from this, uh, this, this one episode I did, which I think was eight or nine minutes, and it was precipitated on a story when I went out to celebrate a birthday with a buddy of mine. And we went, this is before the pandemic, to that really cool thing. There's a couple of them in the metropolitan area called iFly, where you get oh, yeah. inside a tube. They're fantastic. They're just yeah. kind of thrilling without the risk of actually smashing like an like a fly. I've done. I, I I've actually gone skydiving twice. I mean, my my wife thinks I'm crazy. I think iFly is <laughs> probably more in my realm now. But yeah. Well, just think how experienced you'll be at iFly now that you've actually you know, <laughs> skydove twice, whatever yeah. the past tense is. So we're at this place and uh, we're having a great time. And at the end of it, the the guy who'd been our you know concierge or the guy who'd helped us through, we're giving our suits back because you wear these special suits. And um, instead of saying thank you, he said, I appreciate you. And I was so struck by the use of that three-word phrase, I appreciate you. It had such a different impact on me than thank you. It really does. It, it, it affects your brain differently. So I took that experience and I did a podcast. It's one of my more listened to podcasts called I Appreciate You and how you can use those three letter, those three words um, all through your business life and your personal life. So I've done things like that to interviewing Karen, to um, interviewing, like I want to interview the owner of Duck Donuts because I love donuts and I want to understand what were his trials and tribulations in getting a very successful franchise up. And then I have another one that I did just because uh, I love being a father and I spoke at my kids' um, 
fifth grade class a while back and all the all the parents came in on parents day to say you know what they do for a living so it's easy for kids to understand what a doctor does what a lawyer does what a fire person does what a police person does but try explaining the art and science of selling to fifth graders like how do you get that concept across to them so i had to come up with something and i did and I'll, I'll leave a little bit of a tease so your listeners can go fetch it out, but it's called, you know, selling, describing the art of selling to fifth graders, and there's a way to do it. So I've just come up with content to answer your question based on things that I love, things I'm passionate about, and things that have a central theme of helping to progress connection across digital and human platforms. That's my tagline, and also improve people's career and their business. So, so that's what I shoot for. So one of the things that I've experienced since I've started my podcast is the obviously the number of conversations you have that are are directly focused on something expands um, and you can really go deep into something. And I've learned a lot from the various folks that I've spoken with. Um, is there is there a conversation um, or, or a couple of conversations that you've had on your podcast that you just kind of walked away and said, wow, that that really kind of help me understand something or reframed how I see something. So I was at my health club working out one night, you know, several months ago, and there weren't many people in there because it was late. And there was a guy in there who had on a really cool t-shirt, had a great graphic design on it. It was kind of Indian, kind of spiritual, but also kind of rock and roll. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm a friendly guy. So I said, Hey man, I like your t-shirt. We started talking. Turns out he is a local rap artist um, called Born I, B-O-R-N-I. And I, I said, I'd love to have him on, on my show. So I listened to his music and, you know, he releases his music online. And what I learned about from getting to know Born I is the way that he's chosen to spend his life energy around mixing music and spirituality and yoga and parenting uh, in a way that He's built an audience around kind of that four-pronged niche, which I thought was remarkable. Uh, and I follow him on Instagram and, you know, I've just continued to appreciate his messaging and his messages. So the less the takeaway for me there, which was so unexpected, is there's so many ways you can you can make money. There's so many ways you can do things that match up with your need for income and your true calling or something more intrinsically pleasing. So that's, uh, funny enough, a really good segue because I, I'm excited to geek out a little bit with you on <laughs> the future of government work. And what you just described is really a uh, pervasive shift in generational mindset. And right. uh, a colleague of mine and I um, talk, and we, he and I tend to talk together at conferences, um, and we're kind of like a tag team. And he and I talk about the generational differences as a way to frame up a conversation. And, and I say that was a segue because it sounds like Born I sees an opportunity and goes after it. He doesn't sit within a framework of what uh, a prototypical career could look like. And that's very much the way the newer generation looks at things. It's also driven a lot of change within how even you and I go about our daily jobs, how the, and, and how the next generation, next generation will go about it based on the technology expectations, et cetera. So uh, when you think about 
the future of government work and kind of how those generations are driving expectation? I know this is a lot, but how do you how do you see it? How does it how does it come to you or how do you frame it up? Well, that is a lot, um, <laughs> but I'm tracking with you all the way there. Uh, look, I have I have a lot of people I'm in touch with in my circle who are all different age groups, you know, um, Gen Z, Gen Y, Gen X, early boomer, late boomer, you know, even some of the, the, the silent generation. And <clears throat> what people are expecting today, regardless of their age, I think is meaningful work mm -hmm. that they will stay committed to and continue to do as long as two conditions, maybe three are met. One, the work has to be meaningful and fulfilling to them. Like I'm a boomer and that's always the case for me. If I, if it's, if I'm not getting satisfied from the work, even though that is generational characteristically, as those things go, something that's more indicative of the millennials, I'm out, you know, I have to be satisfied by the work. The second thing that I think represents work today that I'm observing is people want to work with people who, who they want to work with. And the corollary to that is they don't want to work with people who they don't. So what constitutes that? Well, you know, that's your standard staple list of unpleasantries, being jerks, you know, not easy to work with, not candid, not transparent, um, not into diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those things are more important today. And then the third thing, and what I'm saying, I believe applies to people working in public service and federal service, as well as in public-private partnerships, and also directly in um, the public sector. Um, and, and the third thing is the ability that work is a, um, a space and intention and not a place. Work is a space and intention and not a place. You know, here we are in COVID, we're working at home remotely, but what does it mean to leave work? It means getting up out of this room that I'm in right now and going into another room of my house and just having the discipline to not come back in here. So I've left the intention to do the work and earn my money and make my contribution. And so people expect that they have that sort of latitude and freedom. So that's, that's what I see. And, and, and interestingly enough, I think that Google is, has a heritage of doing that through all the consumer services, which we've offered that people are used to, you know, Waze, Search, Android, um, Cloud, everything, Gmail, everything that we do is now part of, of, um, of our Google Workspace offering. Yeah, and I, I think... You're absolutely right. So the, the private sector and, and Google is a prime example. I would imagine that you guys had no cha no challenge whatsoever pivoting into 100% telework, right? Um, it's already part of our culture. I mean, yeah, you're right. I don't know if 100%, but boy, I, I got to believe it was pretty darn easy for us as a as a global organization because we've been doing it for years. When, and that's a, a good example of where private sector, I think, has helped drive some of that innovation or um, kind of cultural understanding or expectation within government. Because I actually think it for, for some sections, especially the federal government, I, I, I think the state and local government was a little bit different um, in some places. But at the federal level, I actually think the pivot to telework was... I don't want to say completely seamless, but it was it was a successful transition, I think. Sure. And I think a lot of it has to do with what you said. It's the culture, um, but it's also it's been the investment, I think, in some of the technology that they put into place 
to be able to allow that to happen and allow that to happen securely, which is obviously a huge um, keystone to be able to do this. It's not just doing the work, it's doing it and be, making sure the work you're doing is secure. Absolutely. It, it is that, Brian, and I'll add one thing onto that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's being able to have confidence and certainty that the work you're doing, you're doing securely. And it's taking you and me, the collaborators, out of the system, meaning that we don't have to be involved in where our data goes, how it's stored. We don't have to be the system people. Which drive is it on? Where is it? Which version do I get to? And that's one of the reasons why I don't want to sound too much like a commercial here, but since I worked at Microsoft for six and a half years, I, I speak with some credibility at, you know, now being at Google for two and a half years, that Google Workspace is just a, a much simpler, elegant user interface to, to getting into the collaboration and the productivity and not having to, to be the system where you think about where things go, how they go, blah, 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 blah. So I think that's what the public sector wants and they need to um, have a little bit of time to become more open to that possibility. Well, so you've kind of teed this question up for me then just based on, based uh -huh. on what, what you just said. Uh -huh. and, and, and maybe this isn't exactly what you think I'm going to ask, but so obviously there was a, there's an acceleration in how, how public sector look at the, looked at the technology. There was a gap analysis there they did and said, okay, we need this, this, and this to be successful. What part did cloud play in that? Because you talked about versioning, you talked about access to data, et cetera, and all of that around security. What part of this acceleration or, or how pivotal is cloud to this acceleration that government's looking at? I mean, one way to answer that question is to say, take cloud out of the picture and where would government be today? You know, we'd still be in client server, we'd be in on-premises, yeah. we'd be in, you know, x86 applications. I mean, we would... If you take cloud out of the picture, you kind of have the answer as to where we would be. It'd be a lot slower and it would be a lot less further along. Uh, you mentioned DLT. When I was at DLT with Tom leading the AWS business there to, to, to the public sector, it, you know, that's when cloud first policies first started to come out or even be considered. That's when moving applications to the cloud was high risk mm -hmm. for decision makers in government and in higher education. Uh, that's when small workloads moved to the cloud that were not mission critical was what people were comfortable doing, you know, before we have things like what DOD does now and other agencies in the government where the cloud is de facto. So I think that, you know, what we all take for granted in saying the word of the cloud has been the catalyst in driving the efficiencies that we have um, and, and, and so much more. It's so you brought up how to explain sales to a fifth grader, and my my son Elias is a he's actually six years old. He'll be seven in January, and he's in nice. he's in first grade, Love and it. and he he overheard me and he overheard me in a meeting. I think I had my office door open, and he he we were talking about cloud. I think it was a conversation around FedRAMP, and he asked me about the cloud, and I was trying to explain to him as simply as I could kind of how to access data and how it opens up things. But I was trying to simplify it. And we we generally go on walks at night. I mean, it's harder mm. now because it gets so dark early, but we'll go on walks at night. And um, my wife was talking about how she couldn't access something on her phone, but she, she'd get it back. And he just looks up and his mom, it's right up there. Just, <laughs> just, she, he looked at me like, 
it just come on doesn't she know it's right up there so <laughs> i love it, it yeah it's 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 funny it's it's becoming such an important part of our lives though even beyond work um and i had this conversation actually with my mother-in-law about setting up your own private cloud within within your home and how that works and so all of this access to data is is becoming so crucially important to how we live our lives and how we conduct our our work lives as well but when we look at the the data side of things the information side i think google to me empirically has always seemed like the type of company that places a high value on extracting information usable information from data whether it's kind of the ai engine etc um and i i often say that to me data is not useful information is so what part of that, when you look at the future of work, what part of that does it play or, or the information out of data? What, what piece of the future of work does that play and how important do you see that being for governments globally? You know, when we think about what governments globally do, they support citizens with services that are not that different around the globe. And, and I now am privileged to be able to utter those words and say something like that because I, I support a global team. I run a global mm -hmm. team. And I see that what, what the services are that are needed in Italy or Brazil or Peru that the governments need to provide to their citizens are not all that different than what you know the state of Oklahoma or Fairfax County needs to provide. It has to do with licensing, registration, healthcare, um, taxes, revenue collection, permits, parks, natural resources, there's probably 10 things that are the same around the world with some differences. Mm -hmm. So what Google is so good at and, and will continue to grow in its goodness at doing is kind of automatically through the use of our artificial intelligence engines and resource development, extract useful information from the data. Um, a long time ago, I wrote an article for Federal Computer Week called um, Swimming in Data but Thirsty for Knowledge. And the huh. point of that was, is that th there's data everywhere, but we want to extract meaning from the data. How do we do that? And now we're in an age where companies like Google have gotten really, really good using various types of artificial intelligence to, to do that. And one example would be that we all use every day is just kind of smart selection and smart recommendations that when you're on your phone and you're an Android and you're typing a text, it will recommend finishing it for you. If you're in Gmail, it will recommend finishing your sentence. Initially, it's a little weird and then you, you grow to kind of appreciate it and like it. So that's, that's one kind of productivity-based way to say how you get knowledge out of data. Um, and of course, there's other ways to do it, which range from, you know, pulling trending information on COVID tracking out of Google mm -hmm. Maps and other other contact tracing apps, and then presenting a higher level of useful information to to humans. That no, I, I like that example too. I think the, the the auto finish on sentence is a great great way of kind of showing how you can take tangible data from a user and understand maybe their patterns and and then become proactive about being able to help them finish sentences. I, I remember in high school, I've always disliked math. I've never been great at it. I, I'm good enough just to be able to live, basically. But one of, one of my pet peeves was I always wanted to understand the hardest way to go about doing something because that would help me understand the entire process. And I remember mm. 
you would open up your math book and you would have this page of equations you had to complete. And the example was always the easiest way that the problem could go, it seemed like. And then they'd have the answer and they'd say, okay, now go take on these really tough challenges. So I, I, I like that you gave a good example there. One of the one of the conversations I've had in my podcast was with uh, a guy named Dave Burke, and he's a former Top Gun pilot and instructor. And we talked Ooh. about the advances in technology and and how it's accelerating the amount of data being created. But with that, without being able to extract information can come data paralysis. So uh, again, taking a look at, at your portfolio there, even even beyond just that auto auto finish sentences. What are what are you looking at in terms of making sure that all this data that's flowing in can really be insightful, um, or at least packaged in a way that isn't paralyzing to a user? Well, we have different services in the Google Cloud platform from PubSub and data ingest engines that take the data through a life cycle from ingestion to categorization and then serve it back up through an application or user interface that's designed on, you know, what is the objective for the data? And some of that happens with automation and AI, and some of that happens with good coding and programming. So what, what I think of when I think of getting good stuff out of the data, I think about developing applications or programs for customers that are meaningful in their lives. And I'm able to say that and kind of go in that direction in answer to your question, Brian, because I, I really trust the backend systems of Google to, to do a super good job at those things I mentioned at, at the start there. So we talked about contact tracing. We talked about vaccine distribution. We talk about helping place children in foster homes. We talk about logistics in all sorts of organizations. We talk about um, you know, tracking cars. We talk about food distribution. We talk about Google and education and everything that we're doing to help people in formal education systems and you know, in terms of grow with Google and Google for work to help people gain skills. All of those user-facing kind of life-changing things that we do all run with the benefit of the Google Cloud services on the back end. So, so before we start to wrap up, um, I'm really interested to get your take on um, where you see then the future of government work going. And it, it's my opinion that where we are now is something that was inevitable. And I don't mean the pandemic, I just mean the acceleration of some of the technology evolution. And I'll give you an example. Um, I mean, you, you've been, you've been part of it. Uh, I feel like every week there's a new article talking about a new zoom feature that's been updated or Microsoft teams or Google meet. I mean, you guys rebranding into Google workspace is a great example. And it seems like the evolution of some of these, uh, future of work platforms, if you want to call it that are technologies has just taken off and, and maybe in, in six to eight months, it's been a span of three years worth of engineering updates kind of pushed out. Yeah. Um, so, so with that, take me through where you see maybe the next three to five years, what, what could we expect or what, not even expect, but what do you see? I mean, what I hope and fantasize is that the, the two dimensional experiences so many of us are having through Google meet and other solutions 
which is good enough for the situation that the world is in, where we want to keep our health and safety of ourselves and communities first. It's not really good enough for what we require as social animals on earth. You know, we need human connection. And we won't be able to have the three dimensions of human connection where there are things happening that we're not conscious of, but there are senses and sense, sensory events going on and off that are forming bridges and we're making judgments and everything that happens when two people are in a three-dimensional space. But my hope, my vision, my wish is that the next best thing would be a more immersive Google Meet experience that would kind of be quasi three-dimensional um, through some sort of virtual or augmented reality that would allow us to have even more connection in the creation process around documents, structures, ideas, objects, conversation, and presentations. And, and so that's where, where that lines up nicely, and that is, that's my vision. But where that lines up nicely is when I think about your question, which is, what is the future of government work? I think it will continue to be distributed, but I think it will continue to be even more principle and um, republic-based, you know, based on what, what our rule of law is in our country and what we're all striving for and agreeing to as Americans. And my hope is that many people will continue to be called to service, be excited by the mission of the State Department, be excited by the mission of the you know, essential things that the Department of Agriculture does to protect our food source, be excited by what the National Nuclear Security Agency does to protect our nuclear stockpiles and, and call to serve in the military. I believe that people will continue to want to do that and be called to those services, but the way in which they carry those services out will will be impacted by some of the technology vision that I've uh, that I've shared. I think that's a really cool vision. I'm glad uh, <laughs> I'm holding you to it. Maybe <laughs> well, uh, it's possible. Can't thank you enough for spending some time with us, Gary. Any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with today? You know, it's just been great having a. Kind of a comfortable place to chat with you, Brian. I, I thank you for hosting me and for making it like that. Um, I, I'm incredibly positive about the future um, for for our industry and really for our governments around the world. Uh, I've been doing this for a long time, and there's a lot of people who are called to service, and I think that call is important. And then there's those of us who are called to support those who are called. And I think that that makes all of us in industry equally as important as partners to them. And so uh, I'm confident that the technology side will continue to show up for people, um, but it's it's staying connected in the human form as well as the digital form. That's so important. So that's what I want to leave people with is to, to stay connected on the human side as well as the digital side. And uh, that's my belief. It's good advice from a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And uh, people can reach me. They can follow me on Instagram at Gary Danoff. Uh, they can contact me, Gary at GaryDanoff.com uh, or GDanoff at Google.com. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittistray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.